The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We know at least two, and can probably guess there are several more U.S. defense companies working in this space. We know China's been developing them. We know Russia's been developing them. The the scary outcome that we're kind of coming to is that it's entirely possible each of these attacks might have been by a different actor or nation state, and that there is a kind of, I sort of hesitate to use the word arms race, but that, that these devices are kind of proliferating. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 27th, 2023. You remember Havana Syndrome, diplomats, spies, and other people suddenly hearing a loud noise and then having neurological symptoms, sometimes debilitating. Was it a mass panic? Was it a sonic weapon? Was it a directed energy weapon? And who was wielding it? These are the subjects of The Sound, The Mystery of Havana Syndrome, a new podcast series put out by our good friends at Goat Rodeo, along with PRX and Project Brazen. Joining me in the Jungle Studio to talk about the new project, Nikki Wolf and Max Johnston, who you all will remember from his work on Allies. We talked about the truth of Havana Syndrome. Was it real or was it a fantasy? We talked about what kind of weapon could do that sort of thing. And could you build one at home? And we talked about who would want to shoot a ray gun at U.S. personnel all over the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 27th. Nikki Wolf and Max Johnston on the sound. So, Nikki, tell me about the genesis of this project. How did you? We've all heard of Havana Syndrome. <laughs> uh, everybody has strongly felt, if ill uh, informed, ideas about whether it's real and what it is. How did you decide to sink a very large amount of time into getting to the bottom of it? Oi. <laughs> Um, so Bradley Hope at Project Brazen got in touch with me after my previous show came out, which was on QAnon. And for American listeners who don't know Project Brazen, what yeah. is Project Brazen? They're, they're a startup podcast and, and kind of storytelling company. They do kind of narrative-driven audio and video and things like that. Um, and they were looking for stories, and they he kind of came to me and was like, so we went for a beer, and we were like, Talking about like what the big mysteries going on were. And we sort of both said Havana Syndrome kind of at the same time. And I was coming into it as a conspiracy theory reporter, right? I've, you know, focused on things like QAnon, things like kind of 
all the kind of MAGA conspiracies and things like that. So not quite explicitly, but the implication was to be brought onto this mystery to sort of debunk it, right? And quite, there was this sort of sense of creeping that, that me and Max had, the more that we researched, the more it sort of became clear that there was quite a bit more to it and that the psychogenic hypothesis, this idea that it's a sort of mass delusion, the power of suggestion causing these symptoms, just sort of fit less and less neatly. And then this sort of fascinating kind of national security world unfolded in front of us in a way that was both amazing and also kind of terrifying, right? And yeah, it's sort of, I feel like the rabbit hole is such an ultimate cliche for, for these kind of podcasts. But it really did feel like the deeper we went, the, the wilder it got. So, Max, Lawfare podcast listeners uh, know you um, as the co-creator of our podcast series on the um, Afghan translators' allies. Uh, How did you get involved in this in this project? Yeah, so uh, I was actually just wrapping up allies. And was Which sort of, you should still listen to, by the way, if you do. haven't. There are a lot of yeah, it's really good. There are a lot of you know lawfare podcast listeners who've never listened to Allies, and you all should. No, please do. I mean, it's still to this day one of the things I'm most proud of, have, you know, being able to take a part in. Um, but we we were wrapping up that show, and so I was still in this space of national security of dealing with the U.S. sort of bureaucratic apparatus and specifically like the impact that has on the people that sort of deal with it. And so it's still sort of, you know, in this space of, you know, in a similar sort of topic um, when Brazen had approached us, I think similarly sort of out of the blue, I think um, Bradley had got in touch with Ian who who runs Go- the Goat Rodeo Shop. I think they were working already on something together. I can't remember what that was, but they'd well, contracted on, yeah. Um, but so uh, they got in touch with us and threw this topic at us, and I was immediately interested. Um, it was something I wasn't super familiar with, the topic itself. But I was interested coming off of Allies and coming off that sort of granular look at, I think, it was quite a large story. Um, and we got in touch and started just spitballing on what this would, both the journalism, like the sourcing, the kinds of sort of reporting we wanted to do, and also the creative opportunities here of like, oh, this is a, you know, uh, the big headline sort of grabbing elements of this story are really interesting. It's about spies. It's about classified intelligence. It's about geopolitics. Um, it's about ray guns. It's about ray guns, right? I mean, it, and, 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 what could be cooler than that? Right. And we, once we started talking about ideas, it just became this, in addition to, I think, a really like a story with a lot of impact, we could tell it in a unique and interesting way and a really immersive way. And we talked about making it a very sound rich sort of experiential kind of thing. And so we just immediately saw tons of opportunities. And luckily, I think the brazen folks liked the sort of cut of my jib. And uh, it was a, it was a, you know, we started work, we pretty much hit the ground running. We were, yeah. we were really invested from the beginning. And actually the, the way it came about is we, we sort of put out to tender to sort of podcast production we listened to allies yeah that's the that's so this is like a a a a grandchild of 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 a lawfare production right i mean i really do like i especially now wrapping up the sound i really do see a lot of similarities between the two not necessarily in in the con you know like what we're talking about but in terms of the approach of taking a big story and telling it through like smaller personal stories of illustrating quite large and abstract national security concepts but in very grounded ways and the American government screwing people over is yeah. a pretty common thing. <laughs> um, and, so, and also, just a side note, I, I'm loving that uh, through this podcast, we're talking about another <laughs> allies. I love that allies is getting some shine. So, yeah, you're a great. So for those who don't know the story intimately already, 
walk us through what the podcast covers and what the story that you guys are telling uh, in the sound is. So, yeah, so we, we started off with the already known facts, right? We know that in late 2016, uh, uh, staff at the U.S. Embassy in Havana reported something strange, heard a strange sound, was having strange symptoms. Then that one case turned into multiple cases. Um, it got run up the flagpole uh, in Washington with a bunch of different agencies. And we know those first few cases were CIA um, and then it spread into the diplomatic community within the embassy. Um, and then in August of 2017, it all went public, and that's when the shit hit the fan, right? The State Department, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State at the time, came out and said it was some kind of sonic or acoustic device being deployed. So that was kind of theory number one. Uh, the FBI sent, I believe it's the largest ever overseas investigative team. They came back and said that they thought State was kind of full of shit, a whole bunch of different investigations came out with a whole bunch of different answers, all these agencies disagreeing with each other. Quite quickly, two major theories emerged. One was this idea that it was a psychogenic mass delusion event, and the other that it was some kind of directed energy, probably not sonic, because that, that sort of doesn't fit the pattern. The one that came through was a directed radio frequency or microwave device, which kind of blew both of our minds, sort of like that's you know, ray gun, crazy science fiction stuff. Um, and so we, we sort of went deep into unpicking this. And it turned out, one, there's a long history of directed RF and microwave devices going back as far as the 50s being used. And we, we look into a lot of deployments of it at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, against the U.S. Embassy in Moscow by, by the Russian security forces. Two, the devices that can do pretty much exactly what's being described in Havana, not just exist, but the US government has them. Um, they've been, we look through patents, we look through tr training videos. Yeah, there's there's one where the, the DOD is saying, you know, directed energy is the future of, of uh, American war fighting, right? And so all of this kind of evidence started to come out that, that led us to that kind of conclusion right that's sort of where we yeah where we landed. And, and the show sort of charts the 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 public facing narrative of havana syndrome so you know the, this these cases appear in havana the story goes public and so we chart the initial investigations the reactions the you know how that story unfolds and sort of the, the other parallel story to that which we to unfold over the course of the scene is is sort of nikki's journey through getting to understand this story. So he sort of explores the theories behind what could have happened here in real time as we unfold. So the first episode, we talk about the sonic weapon theory and we talk about how it doesn't quite fit. Um, the third episode, we go through the psychogenic theory and we explore that and we explore why that doesn't necessarily fit with some of these cases. Then we go to, you know, later on the season, Nikki goes to the UK and he built a microwave device and we conduct this experiment. I think any podcast that's good really sets the new standard <laughs> any podcast where you don't get to build a microwave weapon that may violate the Geneva Convention <laughs> uh, is just so last year yeah uh, I mean for, for that exact reason we have to put a legal disclaimer not a weapon. Correct. It was a, yeah, it I, was a I, device. We a can't, device we're not allowed to call it a weapon right although I did notice that at one point you go from uh, saying that we are not going to call this a weapon to calling it a ray gun Instantly, yeah. with, within about 15 seconds. Yeah. It's so much more fun that way, you know, yeah. But yeah, the, the show sort of charts 
Nikki's experience in grappling with this. Uh, yeah, with and the, the whole kind of journey that we went on yeah, through this whole. I hope to bring the audience along with that because we're talking about very abstract and quite, you know, wild stuff. All right. So help me out. Uh, it seems to me there is a third possibility, hmm. which is something happened in Havana. Something very real happened to Mark Polymeropoulos and some other people in Moscow. And then a whole lot of people had a kind of sympathetic reaction mm -hmm. that is more in the psychogenic uh, hysteria department than in the directed energy department. Are you convinced that it's all real or that the core of it is real or that some individual cases are real? You know, there are hundreds of these reports at this point, Thousands including now. one down the street at the White House, right. Yeah. right? Like, am I supposed to believe that somebody was firing a ray gun at the NSC? <laughs> yeah, that that sort of I, – I think basically exactly that, right? It's There is clearly a huge psychogenic element. It really stretches the imagination to think that someone could be pointing some kind of energy device at the world's most fortified building, right? Like that – that stretches credibility for me. I do think in that original Havana cohort, um, I think, as you say, something something happened there. The, the way I'm thinking about it, I don't know if that's sort of uh, how you're thinking about it as well, is like the spikes, the kind of clusters versus the long tail. I think in Havana, I think in Vienna, I think in Hanoi, and I think in Guangzhou, I think there were some sort of attack. The rest of it, and we've spoken to people like uh, Mark Said, who's the lawyer representing some of these cases about how exactly you triage what's a quote-unquote real case versus a, a not. And it's incredibly difficult, right? Because a lot of these symptoms are subjective. And by definition, the circumstances around their onset is mysterious. So it's, it's really tough. And that got compounded by how long it took the US government to gear up its investigations, how poorly the agencies coordinated with each other during those investigations. There was a, a State Department um, Accountability Review Board report that just tore the CIA a new one over just the excessive secrecy about how, how they behaved during all of this. So, yeah, I mean, there, there probably won't ever be a certain answer in, in a lot of these circumstances. But I think I'm certainly convinced that these devices exist and that they have been deployed and that a fair number of the core cases we've looked at are a result of that. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that the thing I've, I've sort of boiled this down to is I think a lot of people have viewed this story with the lens of, okay, we need to find one scary explanation for this. It needs to fit one specific hypothesis. And I think what Nikki and I have realized is that it's, it's many scary hypotheses, right. right? I mean, there are people who we've spoken to who I think have very, very credible claims that they have been affected as part of an intelligence or espionage exercise, whether it was meant to hurt, harm them or not. Um, I've also talked to people uh, who we believe are, to your point, having some sympathetic reaction or had something happen to them that was more mundane, that was a traditional health problem that, you know, they saw the, the, the press coverage and the terrible government response. I mean, if, and, you're, but, if you're feeling bad... Uh, for whatever reason, you know, you have a really bad headache and you hear the 17-year cicadas in Washington, right. you could 
confuse that with mm-hmm. exactly what you describe in episode one, which is this piercing, kind of faintly electronic cicada sound, and then a headache, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I've been through two uh, X cicada cycles in Washington, and you know, you could confuse that for a, a sonic weapon, <laughs> right? And so I, I, I just think that there's a, there is a possibility that if you have a few cases that are real, that people start mapping their symptoms onto, yeah, I, I heard a piercing sound mm-hmm. just as this was starting too, and I think you could really have a situation where the core of it is very real. But there, it gets progressively thinner right. as you, as you trail out. Yeah, one theme we hit on the show is this idea of you know the, the term, the name Havana syndrome, which is quite this salacious, you know, catchy uh, sort of term that was applied to it. Um, Nikki points out in the show that with any sort of story, but in particular something that is as broad as this, there's a tendency to try to connect all these various data points and put it in some sort of package that people can understand. When the reality is this story is much more vast and complicated and fraught than I think mm-hmm. the, the way, the, you know, we tend to sort of process it. And to your point, yeah, I mean, I think the Havana syndrome story or the anomalous health incident story is is one that is not any one convenient sort of explanation for it. But I do think it is shedding light on, you know, American government employees across federal agencies that have gone somewhere to, you know, to do their work and, you know, in service of their country. Something mysterious happened to them that they don't quite understand. And those people trying to reckon that with government bureaucracy, with getting health care, with getting compensation. And I think that's that's a very complicated and fraught thing and not something that you can explain with sort of one simple hypothesis. You know, what we're talking about is something quite bigger and more complicated than that. And then I would say that there, there's the other major themes that have come up, which is one, American agencies and how they take care of their people when something like this happens. And we've heard, uh, we hear a lot from the sufferers of this about how hard they had to fight to get taken seriously. And then how the, the geopolitics of the US-Cuba relationship and how this became... Uh, really convenient pretext to people like John Bolton, who we speak to in the show, to roll back on Obama's opening up of the Cuban relationship and how stark the effect on on Cuba has been. Yeah, so let's talk about, you know, if we accept that there is some core of this story that is not psychogenesis, Mm-hmm. In in origin and and I have spent enough time with Mark Polymarhopoulos that I have no doubt that something happened to mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. that was you know not a figment of his imagination or mm-hmm. or uh, you know psychosomatic symptoms or mm-hmm. whatever. It raises the question of who and you know there's there was the the Cubans are doing uh, this to us thesis. And then there was the, yeah, but the Cubans don't operate in Vienna mm-hmm. and they don't operate in Guangzhou. And and so it must be the Russians because they're the people who, you know, use, you know, sort of very scary weapons to target people mm-hmm. overseas. But there never seemed to be a lot of evidence of that. And then people started talking about the Chinese and so if we move the conversation from the did it happen to the who done it mm-hmm. what what's your sense of 
how, what's a responsible way to talk about that? This is where things get kind of really scary, right? Because, and let's take those four clusters, Vienna, Hanoi, Guangzhou, and... Yeah, I'd forgotten about and it. And Havana. Yeah, right. Havana, big history of, of kind of Russia, US, Russia's got a big presence there. You can sort of see how that would be, like we don't know exactly what um, the CIA station in Havana was doing that made the Russians, assuming they did, want to target them. Vienna, lots of spy Stomping capital of the US. Of the Cold War. Right, yeah. Guangzhou, it's very difficult to imagine that Russia can do something on Chinese soil without China, you know, knowing about it. And, and by which I mean kind of impossible to imagine that, right? Hanoi, difficult to see what Russian interests there might be. But the the kind of where where we go in this show is we know at least two and can probably guess there are several more U.S. defense companies working in this space. We know China's been developing them. We know Russia's been developing them. The the scary outcome that we're kind of coming to is that it's entirely possible each of these attacks might have been by a different actor or nation state and that there is a kind of, I sort of hesitate to use the word arms race, but that that these devices are kind of proliferating. But they're presumably not proliferating in the sense that the the attacks are wholly unconnected to mm-hmm. one another, right? It it the theory would have to be country B noticed that uh, there's this cluster in Havana and said, "Ooh, we can do that." And that whatever countries did this have in common the desire to attack you know, U.S. diplomatic personnel overseas and or intelligence personnel overseas in a fashion that's not easily traceable. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that the thesis, that it's kind of nation-state copycat crimes? Mm. So I think it's sort of related to the point I was saying earlier about no one hypothesis, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. But what I think to Nikki's point is that, you know, we can point out this tech has proliferated to the degree where, yeah, there's – and the – agencies have said this uh, publicly, it's like no one foreign actor could accomplish the entirety of this, which is, I think, abundantly clear. I think another thing that is irrelevant to this is that radiation-based surveillance or radio wave technology being used in intelligence and espionage, it's has a variety of purposes, right? These microwaves have been used to activate listening devices, to disrupt communications, to, you know, intercept intel and communications. And so one thing we've been talking a lot about is First off, this none of this smacks to me as a like a deliberate campaign. Much of this feels as if someone accidentally discovered the potential human impact of some of these operations. But also this idea. So of, wait, do you mean that these weren't directed? Probably weren't directed energy attacks against people. They were directed energy attacks against devices that had collateral damage with respect I, to people. I think both are true. I think some of these were deliberate attacks against people. I think others were specifically meant to intercept communications because some people have told us stories of the onset of their symptoms are associated with the you know I'm at a computer and I get a blue error screen or people working in an embassy that get a tip from the intel services within the embassy that they are under a radio wave attack that's meant to disrupt their communications and so I think there's an element of this that people just got downrange of something that was not meant maybe explicitly to harm them but whether it was intentional or discovered over time they were harmed um, because, like, I mean, my, the Russians were bathing the U.S. embassy in microwaves, yeah. you know, for decades. That was meant to activate listening devices and bugs 
within the embassy. And then it had a potential damaging or carcinogenic effect. And so the question is, is at what point do the Russians realize or care about that? Um, and so I think, you know, some of these stories, I believe, are people that are, are under attack. Some of these stories, I believe, are just people, frankly, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And I think both can be true and both can be quite terrifying things to consider. But it's sort of related to my earlier point in that, you know, these cases are very subjective. Um, we're even talking about different forms of radio waves and the way the technology works. It's not, you know, one specific device, but it fits into this larger pattern of, you know, this electromagnetic magnetic radiation being used in an espionage sort of fashion and the impact that that can have for people that are sort of get caught in the crossfire. Yeah, I, I think I lean towards the idea that by the time you get to 2016, 2017, these technologies having been developed for 60 years by this point, I find it hard to imagine that whoever would be deploying them wouldn't at least know to the point where they wouldn't care about uh, medical side effects to the point where I, I think that has to factor in in a decision to deploy that at that point, right? But yeah, it's it's possible that there's just a, that they're activating listening devices but not caring. That said, compared to the Moscow signal where it was sort of picked up, they detected a signal, but it wasn't, you know, there the wasn't a dramatic immediate onset of symptoms. They didn't hear any kind of sound. This one, whoever's deploying it must also know that whoever gets hit immediately kind of realizes, right? It's not a long-term listening strategy because you're making people bleed out their eyes all over the place, right? Like, it's not that useful as a bugging technology because it's it, it hits people in a way that they immediately notice, right? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. 
So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So before we go on to the next part of this conversation, walk us through what a sonic weapon is and what a directed energy weapon is and how they're different, because mm. I think it's important to the next part of the conversation. So sound is moving waves of air, whereas directed energy is on the energy spectrum, which includes the sort of visible light spectrum in the middle various different types of radiation at, at different parts of the, the frequency band. Sound is difficult to direct and difficult to prevent from spreading, like outwards. It's difficult to, to put to into channel. a focus to channel, exactly. It's also difficult to, to damage people without, like, at a distance, like yeah. in, in a subtle way. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, if a powerful enough, so we looked into didn't find a place in the show for it which is a shame we might get in a bonus episode this guy called Vladimir Gavro who was developing sonic weapons in the 50s and he built one 
this actually became an obsession of like Bill Burroughs and, and David Bowie because he invented something called the black noise, which people got very fascinated by in the, in the 60s. The story goes that a few of his researchers were killed by and during the kind of construction and testing of this device. We couldn't find any absolute proof of that. There's a strange, strangely little information known about, about Gavro. But the device he built was... 75 foot long right like it it's not the kind of thing you can stick in the back of a van these are these are not subtle in order to create a you know direct a sonic thing requires a lot of power and a lot of noticeability right whereas directed energy there's a huge amount you can do with it you know a a torch is a directed energy device you know you're directing a laser or a laser yeah and a good sort of distinction to that point is, um, you know, like a sonic device, the way it would harm you is by blasting you with sound to such a degree that it, you know, physically damages you and, and manifests in a way that you could, you know, you could obviously hear the sound. It's a physical force that is hitting you. Whereas directed energy, specifically in this context, would sort of engineer a sound within your brain. Yeah. The way the radiation interacts with your brain, reverberates and sends pressure waves inside your skull, would engineer a sound that you're hearing but actually doesn't exist in the space around you. And so when we talk about the sound in the show, you know, Nikki mentions sound is a physical force, but what we're describing is the sort of creation, the sort of, that's the immaculate concussion, right? There's sort of the sound being created within your brain. And so I think that's a helpful sort of example to illustrate kind of the difference between the two. All right. So you tried to build one. (laughs) First of all, uh, you tried to build a directed energy device <laughs> yeah um not a sound a sonic device um Although you tried some sonic devices. we tried some sonic devices and it, it just didn't it, like didn't really work yeah, it just makes a loud noise <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 right right so tell us about your experiments with directed energy devices <laughs> um so i got in touch with an old friend of mine uh, a guy called kyle who was a particle physicist and we sort of knocked these ideas around and I was just sort of running some of these concepts by him. And I was like, could we build a, a sort of demonstration, like a test bed, just to sort of run through, to illustrate the theory in a, in a lot of ways. And yeah, so he, he went away, went back to, to his lab and built, it was cannibalized several magnetrons, which is just the parts from a kitchen microwave that, that use, runs electricity through magnets, which creates a, a beam of, of RF energy. Um, bolted several of those to the back of a dish, waveguide, which is sort of is a, a structure that channels, in theory, the energy into a beam. And then we we took it out to a field and, and tested it. And we, we sort of put some test stuff on on a table, like an egg in an egg cup, a donut in a um, in a porcelain bowl, and then sort of fired it. And um, the really important bit was we we had an uh, RF detector which we sort of waved in, and we waved it in and out of the beam, and and it worked. You know, we, we were focusing energy into a beam with stuff that we'd knocked up in a couple of weeks from from household parts, basically. And so that, you know, after that, we sort of took a step back and we were like, what if you had the resources of a, a nation-state um, nation or, or a big defense contractor company? Okay, so it was... Be honest. Was the entire podcast just an excuse <laughs> to make the directed energy? Without a doubt. I will say it was one of the very first editorial decisions that <laughs> yeah. was made. And it was before we had even like, 
we had even like, like gone into the science. Yeah, we yeah. we haven't even talked to any victims yet. And Nikki's like, no, we are we are we're irradiating this field. We <laughs> yeah. are, you know. Um, but yeah, and, and, they, and also I think one I, 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 resp- I have a lot of respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, I think another relevant part was it was that the what you guys had constructed, which. Um, like showcases the the theory behind the science. I think that you know the technology that would be used in what we're talking about is quite more complicated. But you showed that it's accessible, it's doable, and it's it's you can fit it in the car. I mean, these were like these are you able to drive this device yeah. into a field, and so it showed. I think a lot of people assumed had all these questions about how would this even what would this even look like? Could it even be something that could be you know operate in this way? And Nikki showed that. Yeah, I mean, we could do it <laughs> with microwaves laying around, let alone with, yeah. you know, a nation state or an Intel service. Well, and, and it was it, designed you know, to... I, I, I do protests at the Russian embassy <laughs> with a laser, which <laughs> is a directed energy. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And it put can write... Are you our culprit, Ben? Are you behind the uh, scenes? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. it, it produces... is, is Russia responding to your attacks? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. A, repri- a reprisal. And it can put, inc- you know, focused enough directed energy at... 300 yards Mm -hmm. that you can literally write on the building at, you know, it goes away when you turn it off, but, and that's just visible light, Mm -hmm. right? And which is harmless, although not harmless if you pointed it at somebody, but, um, you know, if you're talking about microwaves or x-rays or, 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 you know, something that is, more damaging to human tissue, mm-hmm. all you have to think about is a laser, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and, you're, and you're already talking about directing a whole lot of that energy in very precise locations. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of sort of deeper science that we don't get into in the show because it, it's miles in the weeds, but there's something called a, a maser, which is laser outside of the visible light spectrum, which uh, speculatively can be used in this way to sort of deliver microwaves into a into a very focused beam that that turns into very quickly you get into sort of um, university academic grade physics that's sort of not really necessary for the for the purposes of, of our show but yeah there's certainly a laser is a really good example of how how something can be focused and directed in that way mm. right in a way that you can really see yeah right all right so Walk us through the trajectory of the show. There are eight episodes. I have heard the first two, but give us a little chapter outline. Yeah. So uh, the first uh, two episodes focus on Nikki sort of charting the initial outbreak in Havana. So we describe how these we, – we talked to several of the, the first victims from the original Havana cohort – they describe what it was like at the embassy when this unfolded, seeing people – well, I guess not seeing people go missing from work because they're being flown out. The initial onset of symptoms, the sort of the, – the atmosphere this created within Havana. Episode two goes when the story goes public. The cases spread. Eventually, we, we can talk about this a bit more, but Canadian diplomats in Havana also get hit. Um, and then from there, we spend the sort of the middle uh, chunk of the season, the middle arc, doing our own sort of investigating. So Nikki goes through the psychogenic hypothesis and actually enlisted the help of a mentalist to illustrate mm. what the power of suggestibility looks like on the brain. Episode four, we go into microwaves, the Frey effect, the idea of engineering a sound within someone's brain and how that could lead to brain damage. Episode five is the experiment, the the ray gun or, or ray device. Ray device, um, yeah. Uh, and then episodes six, seven, and eight are about motive and method and the whodunit of it all. So episode six, we go into sort of the case against Russia. What is the evidence that is actually 
against the people that is the, the, the country that is the prime suspect for this sort of thing. Um, episode seven uh, is entails our trip to Havana. We spent about a week there um, in December uh, talking to Cuban government sources, going to the places where symptoms had been reported to understand the physical layout and how these could actually be accomplished and looking at the impact on the ground uh, mm-hmm. in Cuba, which, you know, was devastating. Um, and then episode eight is our conclusions is, you know, and, and throughout that we feature voices, the victims at the core of this and sort of the, the you know, the first person perspectives along the way. So you went from somebody who instinctively thought of this as a conspiracy theory, a sort mm-hmm. of successor series to uh, your work on QAnon few questions. Have you started wearing tinfoil to protect your head? <laughs> We're actually uh, selling merchandise tinfoil hats. In- <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, the serious side of that question, though, is how has it changed your view of the relationship between conspiracy theories mm. and weird stuff that happens yeah. that has some relationship to shadowy actors who you can't identify but are really powerful and doing bad shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the distinction that you always have to make, and I, so I was covering conspiracy theories, I was writing from, for The Guardian for a while, is one, there are and have been actual conspiracies. Governments do weird stuff all the time. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with being skeptical and suspicious of power, right? The, the example I used in QAnon is the difference between the accusation of, of pedophilia, you know, Pizzagate, all that kind of stuff, and the fact that there was, in Jeffrey Epstein, a pedophile ring at the highest echelons of power, right? Like there's a kind of grain of, of truth at the heart of, of this stuff sometimes. And Havana Syndrome was never quite a conspiracy theory in as much as, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of in in the public once it's in the public imagination i think um you get a lot of stuff like that but it's the power of suggestibility on the human brain and how you believe things or don't how you believe the kind of government line but part of what made this less of a conspiracy theory was just how completely chaotic the u.s government response was right it was difficult to even know what this conspiracy would be even the sort of believers everyone has their own very certain viewpoint so it wasn't a classic conspiracy theory in that in that way. But I think bringing a, the same sort of level of skepticism going into stuff is, is important. I think that's that's the kind of core thread. Yeah. Yeah. My big takeaway on that was actually once we had looked into the sort of history of similar stories. So this idea of um, Gulf War syndrome is a great example of people who came back from the Gulf with strange medical problems. They couldn't quite, you know, understand. The medical community grappled with it. There was uh, many people thought it was a psychogenic or sort of a delusion episode. And recently, as of what, I think last year, Mm. there's research that does show that exposure to, you know, toxic chemicals has led to these symptoms. Um, Similar stuff with uh, what happened to the 9-11 first responders and people who had experienced ailments after, you know, going to to Ground Zero or going to the Pentagon. Um, you know, they had to fight to get people to take them seriously. They had to fight to get treatment. They had to fight to get health care. Um, and this idea of, you know, we see – I now see this longstanding pattern of the U.S. government sending people to to war zones or to, to places across the world to do strange and murky work. 
and something inevitably strange happens to them. And there is essentially a, a, you know, a pattern of, you know, the medical community not believing them, skepticism in the press, a really difficult uphill battle for the people that are experiencing this to get any sort of, you know, any sort of validation or treatment. Um, And the reality is these stories take years, if not decades, to sort out the actual truth of it and to reach a conclusion. And so I think there's a chance here that Havana syndrome, it already does fit that pattern to a certain degree, right? And I, I think to that point, there's a chance here and who knows, you know, years, if not decades, Bellingcat or, you know, someone discovers something that is able to sort of give us more concrete answers. On the other hand, there are similarly syndromes that lots of people experience that are impossible to reconcile with other evidence uh, that happen on a on a kind of mass basis, recovered memories of, yeah. of sexual trauma, uh, for example, was a whole big yeah. thing. Yeah, because of the satanic panic. Yeah. The satanic about. panic. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you do have these I'm a I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the to the skepticism than than you guys are, not because I think it's not real, but because I think that you know it does happen that you know large numbers, sometimes very large numbers of people. Just think about the number of people who've decided in the last few years that. Uh, without any evidence of celiac disease, that that they can't eat gluten, you know, and a, a proposition for which there is no medical evidence whatsoever. And I do think there is a the flip side problem is a real one that people are very amenable to suggestions about how they feel or suggestions about the reasons that they feel the way they feel, and you know, if you have a whole lot of people showing up with the same or similar or related esoteric symptoms and you can't identify a cause for them, you know, that's a troubling thing from mm-hmm. a, from both a medical point of view but also from a government administration point of view. Right. Yeah. I think the, the, the skepticism is, is sort of validated in a certain sense in that the opportunity, I think, for really concrete answers here um, has potentially been lost. Yeah. I mean, with the, the the way these cases unfolded, the slow government response, the bureaucratic sort of infighting, also just the way the data and evidence was handled. Right? These none of these pe- none of these patients had control group brain scans. Right? So you see an anomaly or you see damage only after the fact. Right. There's, and, you, there's, and, and you don't know whether it was caused by the event or whether they played football right. and got hit in the head. And so there's just because of, I mean, some of it is just because of the nature of these symptoms, but because of the, the government response, once the story goes public, Pandora's box is opened, right? At that point, you're going to have people that have that sympathetic response, like you mentioned. It's just, we reach a point where it's impossible to get very concrete answers on some of this stuff. And that's something that like to your point, that's that is something that the skeptics. That's a fair point. Like we, we there's a, there's a there's the reality of this story is that there was an opportunity, I think, for these investigations in the scientific community to, I think, grapple with this in a pretty concrete way. And I think that opportunity was was lost for for many reasons, and for many reasons that are familiar to anyone who's interacted with a large bureaucracy. There is just an inherent momentum to the way these these agencies operate and the you know and once you're talking about medical issues and classified intelligence it all gets quite thorny and so i think there was a, there may have been an opportunity here to get clarity and i think that opportunity has likely passed so what comes next oh goodness ufos <laughs> <laughs> well i mean one thing we've been talking to a lot of people lately about now that the show is sort of 
wrapping up is this idea that, I mean, this story is huge. Havana, even as a, a sort of case study or a place where this happened, is one very small sliver of the story. Um, and this idea that now, you know, Havana has gone public and people are reckoning with this. All these other people are going public from all these other vast corners of the globe to say, I went through something like this as well, and I don't know what to make of it. We've heard from people who had gone through, um, well, feature one voice in our last episode, uh, someone who is an FBI agent who was working at a U.S. embassy in a place I can't name. Uh, but he, the embassy went through a radio wave attack to the point where the intel services made it clear as, as so. And he went to his desk one day and his computer wasn't working because their their network had been disrupted. Subsequently, after that, a couple days after the radio wave attack, he starts having all these neurological problems. This is pre-Havana. This is uh, 2011. For years, he has no idea what, what happened to him. He doesn't even necessarily connect it to what he had experienced at the embassy. Then jump forward to 2017, he sees these stories on the news about Havana. And all of a sudden, he, th- he sees an opportunity to get some clarity. Oh, is this what happened to me? Now, did he go through something similar to what happened in Havana? Who knows, right? There's, there's not an opportunity to really figure that out. But for someone like him, this presents an opportunity to potentially get some answers, potentially get some clarity. And so those are a lot of the stories I think we're, we're interacting with now are people who see this story and see something in there that resonates with their own experience and an opportunity to maybe get some answers for what happened to them. I don't know if they'll ever get those answers, but it gives them an opportunity to potentially get health care, potentially get some clarity, and just resolve what is a a strange mystery that happened to them. And I think we're seeing those stories, I mean, across the globe. Um, and I think the, even the places we've referenced today represent one small sliver of the, the sort of clusters, if you will, of Americans who have reported something similar. Now, are they all Havana syndrome cases or are they just people who have gone through something traumatic and strange and they don't know what to make of it? Um, I think that's what we'll be parsing through now, I mean, perpetually, right? As long as people are talking about the story, we will be trying to separate you know, fact from, from fiction here. Um, and so I think or that's... Or fact from some other fact. Right, pattern. exactly. Yeah, separate. Yeah, right. Um, and so, but like I was saying earlier, all this is painted with one quite broad brush. And, you know, these cases are much more complicated than that. And so that's what we're dealing with right now is just the scale and scope of this and what this sort of means, I think, for U.S. government employees, you know, in a, in a, in a broader context. Yeah. The show is The Sound, The Mystery of Havana Syndrome, and our guests have been Nikki Wolf and Max Johnston. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo, and that is true even when Goat Rodeo personnel are not guests on the Lawfare Podcast. Our audio engineer this episode is our guest, Max Johnston, who is doing double duty. He's got the the screen turned from the control room into the sound room. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast and to promote the sound, the mystery of Havana syndrome. So tweet them both. Talk about them both at dinner parties. I want Pinterest pins about it. I want TikTok videos. And of course, you should become a material supporter of Lawfare. It is a crime to commit material support for terrorism. It is not a crime to commit material support for podcasting. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.